General Eisenhower informs me that the forces of Germany have surrendered to the United Nations. The flags of freedom fly all over Europe. The year is 1945. Germany has just surrendered. Thousands of Allied troops occupy Western Europe. A stadium in the heart of Nazi Germany, where hundreds of rallies were once held, is filled to the brim again with 50,000 people. This time, no swastikas or bronze eagles adorn the walls. Instead, finely crushed red brick forms an infield. Behind it, a meticulously mowed green grass outfield. Beer, Coca-Cola, and peanut vendors walk up and down the aisles, serving a cheering crowd. At the top of the stadium, the stars and stripes fly proudly. What was once a site dedicated to fascism and rabid racism now stood as a symbol of victory for the Allies. And what better symbol for America than a baseball game? Home runs over Hitler. Today on Rounders, a history of baseball in America. Hey everybody, I'm Jeff Lambert. I want to take a moment and thank some new fans of the show who recently began following us on social media. It's great to see new people listening to the show and following the posts on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. If you're enjoying the podcast, please, please tell a friend. So today we're going to jump into the first of a two-part series about baseball during World War II. This episode's going to focus on baseball and the war overseas, and next week we'll take a look at how the sport continued on the home front. So for an overview, for those of you who have been out of history classes for a couple years, in 1941 the United States enters World War II, and you had as the main players two sides. You had us with our allies, Great Britain and France, against the Axis powers, which mainly featured Germany, Italy, and Japan. Now the United States, in support of its allies, invaded Western Europe, helped remove Italy's fascist regime from power, and eventually helped topple Hitler's regime in Germany. Now, during this time, over 500 Major League Baseball players were drafted or volunteered to join the military. The prominent ones, like Joe DiMaggio, Stan Musial, or Ted Williams, they were kept from the front lines and mostly played exhibition baseball games in the United States to entertain troops. Less prominent players, though, they found themselves in the thick of things. So once the end of the war rolled around in 1945, there were professional baseball players stationed over in Germany, along with other Americans who either played the sport casually or just loved the sport. So that sets the stage for today's episode. The war has just ended. Germany has surrendered. You have thousands of heavily armed soldiers who are restless and in need of some kind of diversion. These troops are from the United States. They're from Canada. They're from France. They're from England. And so the top brass gets together and they decide to try and find a way to be able to entertain these players and give them something productive to do while they're mopping up after the end of the war. So they decided to take some empty Nazi stadiums that are laying around and really useless at this point, and they decided to use them to host intramural sports competitions to entertain the troops and at the same time give them some healthy competition. 
Now, because of the large American presence in Germany, baseball quickly became one of the most popular intramural sports that were being played there. Now, there were several American military divisions that went ahead and they formed baseball squads to take part in this intramural league. And once this was accomplished, there was a round-robin competition that began against all of these teams to see who was the best. So many of these teams featured both minor and major league players in their lineups, so there was some quality competition on display. Now, the best team to emerge out of all these American military divisions was from the 71st Division of General Patton's 3rd Army, and they were known as the Red Circlers. Now, they were given that name because their uniform patch was a red circle. That was what the entire unit wore. So the best American team came out of this group, the Red Circlers, and they won. So what to do now? So the decision was made, let's play this American team against the best baseball team from these other allied countries that were also stationed in Germany. So, believe it or not, the allied leadership came together and they decided to put on a five-game World Series in Nazi Germany after Germany's surrender. And this World Series would be played against an American squad and a baseball squad from France. And the winner of this World Series would be crowned the European Theater of Operations champion. And the military brass pulled out all the stops for this World Series. So what they did was they decided to take a nearby stadium in Nuremberg called uh, Stadion der Hitlergugen. I think I said that right. It was a 50,000-seat stadium, and it was built specifically for use for Nazi youth rallies. And they decided to convert this into a baseball stadium. They created a perfectly prepared baseball field. They added additional bleachers to the already uh, set-up stands that were there. And they were expecting to hold large crowds for this World Series. And ironically, the work to put together the baseball field and the extra bleachers were actually done by Nazi POWs. So they actually did the work putting together, converting this old stadium that was used for Nazi rallies for this baseball game, this World Series, you know, America's sport here in uh, their fatherland. So that must have been a double slap in the face. So the day of the game arrives in early September of 1945, and it's actually scheduled the day after Japan surrendered. So people are already in a cheerful mood. The Armed Forces Radio brought in announcers to broadcast this game. There were over 50,000 Allied servicemen that packed into the stadium to watch the first of this best-of-five game series. It's packed to the gills. People are listening across Europe on military radio, and you have everybody who has a pass who's in this stadium ready to watch this game. It must have been a great opportunity for American soldiers to have a chance to relax after such a horrible experience. I mean, let's just take a moment to think about that. So they spent years fighting tooth and nail, shooting and being shot at, huddled in foxholes, sometimes with little food or no warmth. And today, the war is officially over on both fronts. They're going to go home. They're going to go to their families in just a few more weeks. The sun was shining that day. They had a cold beer in one hand. They had a hot dog in the other. And a baseball game's about to start. That must have been nostalgic and heartwarming at the same time for these troops.
So let's take a look at these two teams that are facing off against each other. You have the American Red Circlers, and they're led by two major leaguers from the Cincinnati Reds and the St. Louis Cardinals. You have Harry the Hat Walker and Ewell the Whip Blackwell. Now, both of these guys, as heads of this team, made sure to use any connections they had to transfer other soldiers with major or minor league experience into their division so they could play on this squad. So this team was packed with talent. Now, on the other side, you have a French squad who's mostly made up of semi-pro players. These are no-name guys, with the exception of one man, the team's later, and his name was Sam Nahum. Now, Nahum was a journeyman major league pitcher during this time, and he had some fame, but nowhere near the likes of the two on the other side that were leading the American squad, Blackwell and Walker. So, this must have seemed like such a one-sided affair from the start. You have this American juggernaut with mostly minor league and major league players, and they're facing against this French squad that barely has any professional talent. The French team had two aces up their sleeve. There were two players on this team that no white baseball fan during this time would have ever heard of. We'll continue with more after the seventh inning stretch. If you're enjoying the podcast, please, please take a moment and follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Rounders Podcast. That's one word, Rounders Podcast. You'll get photos, quotes, and short event summaries from baseball's rich past in your feed on a regular basis. I also want to hear from you about topics that you'd like to see covered, so please keep in touch and follow me. I've also started a Patreon account. So if you have one or two dollars a month, I'd appreciate your support. It goes a long way towards helping me upgrade equipment and pay the bills so I can focus on putting more shows together for you. If you have the ability to send me five or more dollars a month, I'll give you some exclusive perks, such as show notes with photos and research references, extra episodes, and regular live Q&A sessions with me. If you're interested, just go to patreon.com and search for Rounders Podcast. A link is also available in the show notes. That's all for now. Let's get back to the show. Hey, welcome back, everybody. So we were discussing the two allied teams. One was made up of U.S. soldiers and one was made up of soldiers in the French army. They were facing off in a World Series that was set up by the Allied commanders as a way to occupy troops at the conclusion of the war. Now, these two teams had made it to the finals and were set to play in a best-of-five series in a large stadium in Germany originally built for Hitler Youth Rallies. Now, there were 50,000 people here in attendance, and there were thousands more tuning in by military radio. The American team was made up of major and minor league players enlisted in the U.S. Army. The French team was mostly semi-pro players, led by one journeyman professional. But the French team had two all-stars from another major league, one created as a result of segregation in the United States. So let's talk about those two players on the French team that were unknown to the American team. We had Willard Home Run Brown, and he was a star largely ignored by the media 
and Major League Baseball simply due to the color of his skin. He was a huge name in the American Negro Leagues, though, and he was one of the premier home run hitters and outfielders of the 1940s. As a matter of fact, he led his Monarchs team to five pennants in six years before the outbreak of the war. And during those years, his batting averages were 371, 356, 336, 337, and 365. He went down to play professional baseball in Mexico and dominated there after that. And while he was doing all this during the winter months, he went down to play baseball in Puerto Rico, and he earned the nickname Ese Hombre. Now, after retiring uh, and going back from the war, Willard did get his shot at the major leagues once Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier. He never got the chance to settle in with the league and with his new team, though, once he was signed, and he was cut shortly after. And he never got a second chance to play in Major League Baseball. But he did set one record during his time there. He was the first African-American to hit a home run in the American League. But for now, during this World Series in Germany, he was a relative unknown to most people. Now, the other French ace unknown to the American team was a guy named Leon Day. And Leon was another star player in the Negro Leagues in the United States. Day was a top-tier pitcher for the Newark Eagles. Now, he never got his chance to play in the major leagues after the war because of the fact that he was in his mid-30s and he was considered too old for any team to take a chance on him. Now, why were these American enlisted players suiting up for the French-based squad? Simple, unfortunately. They weren't allowed on the U.S. team. They could fight and die for the United States, but they couldn't represent them in a game of baseball. So, game one begins. The U.S. team ends up winning 9-2, and it was thanks to one of their star players, that Cardinals pitcher Ewell Blackwell. He posted nine strikeouts. So in game two, the French squad starts African-American phenom Leon Day. Leon ends up leading the French to victory, and he pitches a four-hitter. And everyone, by the end of that game, in that stadium knew who he was. And it was thought that that would also be broadcast internationally and back at home. Unfortunately, the New York Times, who ran a story on Game 2, spelled his name wrong. And they referred to him as Leo Day, the pitcher that tossed the four-hitter. So even his fans who watched him in the Negro Leagues back in the U.S. didn't hear about this feat until much later. So, the series is tied one-to-one. The two teams traveled to Reims, France to play games three and four. Now, they did this because they wanted to give another group of soldiers a chance to soak in some competitive baseball. So, the two teams travel to France, and they end up splitting the two games there. And so, that forces a game five. A winner-take-all situation. This French team, against all odds has held their own against the stacked American team. So, the American brass decides that for this Game 5, they're going to have the two teams go back to Germany to that Hitler Youth Stadium to play the final match. Now, this Hitler Youth Stadium had taken on a name by this point, and it had been aptly renamed Soldiers Field by the Allied troops that were stationed there. So, Game 5 is lined up, the stadium is packed again, Everyone who was there, anybody who could get a pass, was in attendance to see this game. 
the American military newspaper Stars and Stripes stated about this game, and I quote, The game was so close all the way through that it kept the crowd of over 50,000 on its feet, cheering wildly and rewarding unfavorable decisions with sounds as wild as any ever to emerge from Ebbets Field or the Polo Grounds, end quote. So, sounds like we have a real World Series atmosphere for this Game 5. Now, the American Red Circlers make the decision that they're going to start Game 1 winner Ewitt Blackwell as their pitcher. Now, he did a great job through seven innings. He held the French team scoreless. But in the seventh inning, and the Red Circlers are up one to nothing at this point, Blackwell gives up a hit, and he puts a man on first. So, the French manager puts on Leon Day, the African-American pitcher from Game 2, in to pinch run. Now, what the American team didn't know was that Day was also, in addition to being an excellent pitcher, an excellent base runner. So, he's put into pinch run. He ends up stealing second and third base consecutively. The next uh, French player up hits a sacrifice fly, and Day comes across the score, and now the game is tied 1-1 to at the end of the seventh inning. Now, in the eighth inning, the Negro League counterpart today, Willard Home Run Brown, the guy we talked about first, stepped to the plate with a man on first. He ends up smashing a double that goes all the way to the wall. He scores the runner on first, and the French team has the lead 2-1. to So that takes us to the ninth inning. With their backs to the wall, the American Red Circlers have three men left, and out of, one, out of those three men, one of them is one of their team leaders, Harry the Hat Walker. So all three of these players end up going down. One, two, three. And the French team pulls off an absolute upset. They won the European Theater of Operations World Series, and the American team was sent back with their tail between their legs. So this French team, so they get the star treatment. They get to fly back to France. They're met with a parade. There's a ceremony held in their honor. And the the keynote speech is given by Brigadier General Charles Thrasher. At night, they throw this lavish banquet for all the players. And they're given all the steak and champagne they could eat. So this ended on a high note for them, definitely. And these players earned the recognition that they deserved. Now, what about the players that were on the Red Circlers team after the war? What happened to them? Well, most of them went back to the States and they resumed playing baseball. One of the two leaders for the team, Ewell Blackwell, went back to the major leagues. And he made six straight all-star teams after he returned from the war. And he almost threw two no-hitters back-to-back. He completed one no-hitter and he took another one into the seventh inning during his next start. But it was broken up by a single. Now, Blackwell was eventually inducted into the Cincinnati Reds Hall of Fame, and he's been called by many as one of the best pitchers of his era. Now, the other leader of the American squad, Harry Walker, he ended up going back and resuming his major league career as well for the Cardinals, and he actually won the World Series with the Cardinals the season after going back from the war. He actually hit the single that drove in the run that ended up winning the World Series in Game 7 of that year against the Red Sox. So 
After this, Walker ended up being an all-star, and he was the National League batting champ in 1947. So he also went back and did quite well for himself in the major leagues afterwards. But this event definitely matters in baseball history. I was so amazed when I was reading up on this topic because I had never heard of it before. Think about it. This series showcased baseball's first international match involving major league players. We saw African-American players play against major league players before Jackie Robinson even broke the color barrier. And I think overall it showed baseball's power to bring people together, even in the midst of death and war. We've spent time on this podcast talking about how baseball wasn't just a sport, that it really came to define what America was about and how much of a cultural impact it has continually had on our history. This certainly is no exception to that. Well, thanks for tuning in, everybody, for this episode. I appreciate your support. It means a lot to me. Don't forget to follow me on social media, and if you have a few dollars laying around, look me up on Patreon. And remember, there are only two seasons, winter and baseball. 